Well, we're going to continue our series, Road to Resurrection, and uh, if you've been here, or if you've not been here, that's okay, but we've been moving towards the Lenten season to Resurrection Sunday, and even in our Sunday school classes, we've been doing what's called the Easter experience and trying to walk and remember, what did Jesus have to go through? And we're also asking this question, what do we do with Jesus? If you had been in the first century, you would have had to see what was going on in Jesus' life, what he did, what he said, and decide, what am I going to do with this guy, Jesus? But it, here we are in the 21st century, and we're still having to answer that question. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with him? He is the great I Am. And we've looked at uh, several folks who encountered Jesus in that first century. We talked about the soldiers the first week, and they kind of dismissed Jesus. They had become indifferent to Jesus because of all the harshness of life of a, of a Roman soldier. And then we talked about some rejected Jesus because he claimed to be God or because he didn't fit the mold that they wanted him to fit to be the Messiah. Messiah should be somebody who has military power or political power, and Jesus wasn't becoming that, so they rejected Jesus because of that. Or sometimes they rejected Jesus because he simply requires something of us, the fact that he demands life change of us. He's not going to let us get away with just being the same. We have to be transformed, and so some people reject Jesus because of that. And then last week, Jonathan Powell looked at the, the brutal torture that Jesus went through before the crucifixion, and how that hurt because the, his own people were saying, crucify Jesus. If he's not going to become that Messiah that we want him to become, then we want him to be crucified. And uh, Jonathan did a great job of getting us to understand that Jesus knew that was coming, and Jesus suffered willingly so that we could have forgiveness and have restoration. So today we're going to continue to ask ourselves, what do we do with Jesus? And so I want to start today by several years ago, y'all remember Desert Storm, and there was a soldier there who was over there, and in those days you didn't have cell phones and all that, they might have been in, in the process, but a soldier over there received a, a Dear John letter from his girlfriend, y'all know how those are, and basically his girlfriend back home in the United States was saying that she had met someone else and she wasn't going to wait for him, and... Uh, and they were actually engaged to be married now. And to add insult and to injury, she wrote, Could you please send me that picture you have of me back? Because it's my favorite picture of me, and we need that to announce the wedding in our local paper. Can you imagine? So this guy's pretty devastated, obviously, and rejected. And, and, but his fellow soldiers heard about what was going on. And so they came to his rescue, and they all said, we've got an idea. So they gathered up all the pictures of all the girlfriends in the whole camp, and they put them in a shoebox, and he sent it to the girl along with this note. Please find your picture and return the rest, because for the life of me, I can't remember which one you were. <laughs> Now, we laugh at that, but it's, it's kind of a sweet revenge, I guess, but it's really not funny when we, um, when we uh, are abandoned, when we're deserted by somebody that's close. It's not, it's not good, is it? We feel this sense of a painful memory, and maybe you've had that in your own life. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it was a close friend who abandoned you or, or deserted you or did something that hurt you at a crucial time in your life. And after experiencing something like that, it can be very hard to trust again, can it? We are not sure we want to trust people again. 
much less give unconditional grace to the person. And what we're going to find out today is that Jesus, even though those who abandoned him, he still gave them unconditional grace and love. You know, it was one thing for the crowds that were Jesus' own people, his own Jewish people from Israel, saying, we want him crucified because if he's not going to become what we want him to be, in our opinion, then we want him to die. We don't want him around anymore. What good is he? That was one thing. But what about the disciples? It's one thing to have people who maybe didn't know you that well and maybe were confused about who you were to say, we don't want you to be our Messiah. But how about those who were closest to Jesus? For the last three years, they followed Jesus. They've camped out with him. They've gone all over Judea with him. And their response to Jesus changed when life got hard on that night he was arrested. The challenges of life often reveal our true response to Jesus. And difficult times don't just reveal necessarily or test a person's character, but they reveal a person's character during tough times. So this week we're going to look at this ultimate question in life of what do we do with Jesus when life gets hard? Because it's one thing when everything's going good in your life to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. But when things get hard like it did for the disciples, what happens? So when we talk about the deserting disciples, we typically think about two guys in particular, don't we? One was Judas, the one who basically betrayed Jesus. We always think about him. Or we think about Peter, the guy who three times denied Jesus. says, I will never do that, but three times he denied Jesus. And you, you think about that seems kind of surprising from the disciples because they had seen all these incredible miracles. And even Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration seeing the miraculous things that he saw. It's like, I don't know where this is going, but I'm okay because I've seen what Jesus has, the power he has. He obviously has to be from God. But they watched Jesus make the lame walk, the blind see, turned a, a funeral procession a couple of times into what, family reunions, if you will. And why would friends leave such a man after all that they had experienced with Jesus? It seems incredible until we really examine our own hearts and our own histories. And you think, if I'd been in that first century, I wouldn't have done that. But then I'm going, I don't know what I would have done. I might have been mad that Jesus wasn't becoming what I wanted him to. I might have been upset that he wasn't going in the direction I thought he should go. I might have gotten scared, probably would have, when I saw the swords and the clubs and the the torches, and they started chaining Jesus up, I'm like, okay, I'm out of here. I probably, so it's easy for us to stand in judgment of those guys, but not sure what we would do either. So I want us to consider a couple of things from uh, those people who walked away, who abandoned Jesus, and kind of look at those stories and see what it maybe says to us. So we're going to look at um, uh, Matthew 26 this morning, and we're going to look at chapters 36 through 41. And uh, we're going to read kind of what happened uh, in that first desertion of the disciples. So Matthew 26, starting in verse 31. There we go. 36, sorry. Then Jesus went to his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. 
Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Man, I think we can all identify with that last statement. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. So this happened two more times. We know Jesus came back and asked them to to keep praying. When he came back, they were asleep. And he woke them up and said, hey, are you guys with me? And then he had to go back another time because they had fallen asleep. And he wanted, I think they wanted to, but, you know, they'd been through this big Passover meal together. It had probably been a stressful day. Anytime you were with Jesus, you never knew what was going to happen. And all of a sudden, he asked them to pray, and they tried, but they just couldn't do it. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us have fallen asleep while we were praying? Okay, we've all done it. You know, we started, we had good intentions, but we, uh, I'm laying in my bed, you know, with the lights out, looking at the ceiling, and I have full intentions of talking to God. And then I'm asleep. Like, oh, man, you know. And so we've all experienced that. So we understand. And the phrase I want us to kind of focus on today is fatigue. Anybody ever felt fatigue before? And when you have fatigue, it's hard to stay awake. It's hard to focus. And that's why I think they deserted Jesus is because of fatigue and fear. But we're going to talk about fatigue first, and then we'll talk about fear a little bit. When Jesus requested their prayers, he wanted them to be a part of what he was going through. But they were just fatigued. Have you ever had that feeling? You've been so tired, you had a hard time staying awake. Maybe it's in a class. I remember being in high school and just going, oh, man, especially the last, right after lunch. It's, it's horrible, isn't it? Or if you have meetings right after lunch and you're going, oh, please, you want to put toothpicks in your eye, like, please keep me awake. Now, I want to tell you all something kind of, it's not really funny to me, but it's weird. I have this recur, and I'm not making this up. I have a recurring nightmare that I've had since I was a youth minister. That's where I first started the ministry. And I still have it to this day pretty regularly. I have a fear. I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping and I'm dreaming that I'm driving a van full of kids as a youth minister and I'm falling asleep. And I know I'm falling asleep, but I can't stop. And I'm going, please wake up, wake up, wake up. And I, and I start wrecking the van full of kids and I wake up and I go, oh God, thank that's, that's not true. Isn't that horrible? I still have that dream. And I think it's because when I was a youth minister, I was so afraid of falling asleep with a group of kids, so I still have this recurring nightmare of that. But you all know, when you want to stay awake and you can't, it's an awful feeling, isn't it? Especially when you're driving, sometimes you have to pull over and get a Red Bull or a coffee or whatever it is to try to stay awake or have somebody pinch you or pull your arm hairs out or whatever it is, you know, to stay awake. It's an awful feeling. And I think that's the way the disciples felt, but they were just tired and they really didn't understand the magnitude of what was getting ready to happen. Because when they woke up, they woke up not from saying amen, but they woke up from sleep and all of a sudden there's a bunch of soldiers there with torches and swords and weapons And now they had the opportunity to do something, and they're confused. And we know that they ran away. So we're going to go back to Matthew 26, and we're going to skip down a little bit to verse 55. And this is what Matthew records. At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Notice, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Not just Peter, but all of them fled. And these guys had been so close to Jesus. Inwardly, they enjoyed that popularity with Jesus. And some even longed for more popularity and more maybe positions of power. You remember, right before they started that meal that night, Jesus caught them arguing over who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. 
And Jesus goes, man, that's not the way it's going to be here. We're not like the rest of the world. It's not about whoever wants to be first will be last, and the last will be first, all those kind of things. And then you remember Jesus got down on his knees and washed all of their feet to show them that principle. But they longed for this. But when it appeared that the future meant something different, they all fled. They didn't want to be a part of Jesus anymore. Their commitment faltered when they go, wait a minute, I didn't know I was signing up for being arrested and maybe even killed. And Jesus said to his sleeping disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that sounds familiar to me. Our intentions, my intentions are very good sometimes. But often when we're just too tired to do what we need to do, we don't end up doing it. I think we all can identify with that, right? We've all said, man, I'm just so tired. I know what I should do. So instead of spending 30 minutes in prayer, I end up going, I've just spent 30 minutes scrolling through my phone for something I really don't even need. Or we intend to wake up early and spend some time early in devotions with God, but we can't wake up because we keep hitting the, the snooze button on our alarm. We know what kind of parent God wants us to be and that at the end of a long day I should spend some time with my kids and maybe sharing uh, maybe a devotion with them or praying with them before they go to bed, but I end up just uh, hugging them, telling them, love them, put them in bed, and then I camp out and watch a ball game for a couple of hours or binge watch one of my favorite shows. So we know about fatigue, but it also can be fear sometimes. Like the disciples, perhaps you desert Jesus when there's a fear of Jesus demanding more of us than we really think we want to give Jesus. And I think that's what happened to a lot of people. We read in the gospel about Jesus saw a lot of people. The closer he got to the cross, people started leaving him. He goes, you don't want to be my disciples anymore? He even asked his own disciples, are y'all ready to leave too? And Peter goes, man, you have the words of life. We know you are the Messiah. We're not going anywhere. But yet when it came to it, they fled too. But when we think about fear, we want a relationship with Jesus, but we don't really want it to cost us anything, do we? What's the cost involved? If it's convenient, if it's comfortable, if it's cool, if it's going to be popular, then I'm in. I want to be a part of church. I want to be a part of God's kingdom if it's cool and popular. But when following him starts to take us down an unpredictable path, path of sacrifice, sometimes we want to bail out and go, I don't know about that. So the disciple story is one of fatigue and fear, and I think we all can identify with that. But let's go from that to Simon Peter and his story. So Peter was basically kind of like the leader of the disciples. We saw that in a lot of things we read about in the Gospels. You know, he's, uh, Peter's the one that spoke up when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they gave all these answers. And then Peter's the one that spoke up and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He spoke up. He was the one who was the first one to speak a lot of times. And it got him in trouble a lot. He put his foot in his mouth, as we know as we read the Gospels. But he essentially was a lead disciple along with James and John and was especially close to Jesus. Earlier in Matthew 26, just before his prayer time in the, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus says, Y'all are all going to fall away. All of you are going to fall away. And they can't believe it. And in Matthew 26, verses 33 through 35, Peter is offended by this, that he would even suggest that he would fall away. If you fall away on account of, even though the others will, Jesus, I will never do that. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And this is another part of this verse. And all the other disciples said the same. None of us will desert you. And do you hear the number of times that, that Peter uses I in that passage? I will never desert you. Even if they do, I won't. It was all about him. 
And he truly meant it, I think, in the moment, like a lot of us do. We truly mean these things. But there were no soldiers around when he made that statement. There were no soldiers with clubs and torches and swords and chains chaining Jesus up. There were no whips in that moment. There were no Roman soldiers there about to nail somebody to a cross. There was just a group of people who loved Jesus. And in that moment, he could say, I will never forsake you. But part of the story can be found in the word arrogance. It essentially says, they might, but I won't. And it's easy for us to pick up arrogance in someone else, isn't it? Can't you pick up arrogance in somebody else? Go, yeah, I don't like them. They're cocky. You know? And there could be somebody saying that about us, but we don't see it, do we? We're blind to that because we're self-absorbed sometimes. We don't see it. We have a blind spot to that. And the Bible says that pride comes before fall. Pride can cause us to, to overestimate ourselves or our abilities. It can cause us to underestimate our need for other people and our need for God because we can do it all. And dealing with pride is difficult because very few people acknowledge or recognize it in their own lives. We have no trouble, like I said, spotting it in someone else, but in our own lives it's a blind spot. In Obadiah... It says this, the pride of your heart has deceived you. In other words, what's keeping you from seeing your pride is, in fact, your pride. It's blinding you. And if you say, I don't have a problem with pride, understand that it's pride that's really making you say that. I don't have a problem. I can stop being a jerk anytime I want. I just haven't yet. <laughs> but pride keeps Peter from recognizing his vulnerability. He doesn't even, it's not even a question. I will never, I will never forsake you Jesus but when challenge when challenges come the source of his confidence was exposed and that happens for us sometimes so we skip ahead in the chapter and see Simon Peter's story unfolding after Jesus is arrested now what Peter does is is after Jesus is arrested as y'all know he kind of is is runs off but he keeps a, a, an eye where he can see where is Jesus where is he going because I want to see what's going to happen to Jesus next so he's He's sort of close by, but he's hiding. So Matthew 26, starting in verse 69, this is what Matthew records. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had, Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. See, all that pride, all that, I'll never do that, all of a sudden it comes out. And Luke, in his gospel, around this same specific uh, detail, he says this. He says in verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 61, The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Man, Luke was a detailed man. If you read Luke and Acts, and think about that, all of a sudden you heard that rooster crowed, and you turned, and Jesus is looking right at you. Can you imagine how that felt? He knows. Evidently, Jesus was probably being led from Caiaphas' house, and the timing that their eyes met was perfect to look at each other. But I don't believe that Jesus looked at Peter with one of those haughty-type eyes like we do when someone, as we told them it would happen, and we go, see, I told you so. 
You ever said that to somebody? See, I told you that would happen, and we kind of have that arrogant thing. But I think when Jesus looked at Peter, it wasn't an arrogant look. It was a, man, I'm hurt. I've chosen you to be my disciple, and you said you would never. I'm so hurt, Peter. I'm not only hurt for me, but I'm hurt for you. Because he knew he really wanted to be. So let's go from the disciples and the, the fear and the fatigue and the arrogance of Peter till now, Judas. What was his situation? And a good case can be made that until the betrayal, Judas was one of Jesus' closest friends. He had been put in charge of the money. Did you all know that? He kept the money. And we know when we read the Gospels later, years and years later after Jesus' death and resurrection, that the Gospel writer said that you know Judas was stealing from the money. But nobody knew that from the beginning. They thought, he's smart with the money, we can trust him, so he's going to be the guy that handles the money, and that's who they gave the money to. And so if we understand also the seating arrangements of the Jewish culture, Jesus talked about this a little bit in some of his parables. He talked about usually the the most honored places at a dinner are right next to the guest himself, and that person would be sitting next to him. So at the Last Supper, we see Peter on one side, and on the other side, Judas. So Judas was close to Jesus as well. He had one of the honored seats. And uh, that's interesting when you think about what happened next. And there's an Old Testament prophecy in, in Psalm 41, which was written thousands of years before Jesus. And I talked about this in my first sermon in this series, about all the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. And it says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he has shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That was predicting what... Judas was going to do thousands of years before it happened. That's amazing when you think about it. Now, if you were on Family Feud and they, you know how they did it, go, out of 100 people surveyed, the answer would be, and if you ask, name a betrayer, most everybody's going to say Judas, right? Wouldn't you say that? And if you thought about naming your son after one of the disciples, you might have thought of James or John or Peter or Andrew, but you certainly would not think about naming your son Judas, would you? We always think about. But of the 12 disciples, Judas was kind of an outsider, if you will. Most of all the other disciples came from Galilee, but Judas came from a a region in southern Judah called Kerioth. It's a little bit different region. And he's often mischaracterized. When Jesus said to his disciples, one of you will betray me, the other 11 didn't all go, Judas. They didn't do that. They all said, if you read the Gospels, they go, is it me? Is it me? They're going, what, who would do that? We've all been together for three years with Jesus. None of us would do that. Who is going to do that? And remember, he says, the one who dips in the bowl with me. And that was because Judas was sitting right next to me. And even after he did it, most of them didn't understand because you just go, go do what you got to do, Judas. And he just left. They didn't really put it all together. And you see paintings or drawings or even in movies, uh, you see a, a, a portrayal of who Judas, and he's always got angry eyebrows, doesn't he? You know what I'm saying? But it's like, we know that. So when you're casting Judas, you cast a guy, but he didn't, you didn't know that at first. It's all like, Judas is this guy, you know, he's like always sinister. He wasn't like that because nobody thought it would be him. Everybody was surprised when it happened. And sometimes we know the most trusted person in a group is the person that disappoints everybody. I never would have guessed, out of all the people in our group and all of our friends, I never would have guessed that would have been the person to do that. But what was ultimately revealed about Judas is that he had a love for money. He ended up deserting Jesus, as you remember, 
and giving Jesus up for 30 pieces of silver. That was a lot of money. He wanted money. And also, it wasn't just the greed that maybe Judas had a problem with. He also was disillusioned. We believe that Judas was also mad that Jesus wasn't using his power. And he knew he had that power to take over Rome. Do something about this. We shouldn't be under Rome's authority anymore. Why don't you use that power? And Jesus wouldn't do it, so he became disillusioned and says, I'm going to give him up. So Judas had some unspoken expectations of what kind of king he believed Jesus should become. And over the years, I've seen several Christians, and you have as well, People who have had difficult things happen to them in life. And they become disillusioned with God. And they become mad at God. And they want to give up on God. You weren't supposed to let this happen in my life. You were supposed to do this, not this. I was supposed to get that job. I was supposed to get uh, this relationship was supposed to work. Why did this happen? And people become disillusioned with God just like Judas did. And if I'm a Christian... I won't have any money issues. I won't have any of those kind of issues. I won't have any health problems. If I'm a Christian, I will certainly never have to bury my own child. And people experience some of those horrifying things in life and they are upset with God. And that's to be expected sometimes. We expect sometimes God to provide us with this comfortable lifestyle, free of any kind of difficulties or or, or tragedies in our life. And Jesus even said... In this life, in this world, you will have trouble. He promised us that. But he said, take heart, because I have overcome the world. And he showed us that through his suffering. If you see Jesus as a wise counselor who will solve all your problems and bring family harmony to your crazy family, because I know we all got them, right? If you see that, and then when it doesn't happen, because, you know, I'm like you. We've all prayed for things over and over again. You go, man, does he even hear me anymore? I'm wondering. But we'll get disillusioned. But look at Jesus dying on the cross. His mother was present. But we don't read anything about his father. Maybe we think Joseph died when Jesus was young. But his own brothers didn't even believe in him. He even had one of his own disciples, Judas, betray him. And everybody ran off. So Jesus can't control everything in life like sometimes we want him to. So think about some of those factors we've talked about today. Fatigue. Fear, arrogance, greed, disillusionment. We've all experienced that in our life. They're part of our story as well. And ultimately for the disciples and for us, it comes down to a choice. Will we choose Jesus over comfort and security? Or are we going to be mad when things don't all go our way? When the heat is on, when the testing comes, how will we answer that question? What do I do with Jesus now? Now, when something difficult happens. Not long ago, I read a story of, a, of an elderly missionary who had been on the mission field for uh, over 30 years, and he was coming back to the United States for the first time. And uh, he flew into California, and he was going to uh, take a bus from California to meet his daughter, who he was going to live with, and her husband out in the Midwest, but he was going to take a, uh, a bus. And so his first stop on the bus was Las Vegas. And can you imagine if you've been out of the country for 30 years, and you go to Las Vegas? So he goes to Las Vegas, and uh, he checked into a hotel, and he decided to take a walk down the Las Vegas Strip that night. And, of course, it looked like the middle of the day because of all the lighting. And as he walked down the Strip, he heard the loud music. He saw these amazing hotels. He went to a car show where he saw you know, the finest automobiles, some of the, the latest automobiles. He saw the marquees announcing all the, 
the entertainers that are in Las Vegas, the drink specials, the amazing food specials, all these advertisements. And he just saw all of this as he walked down after not being in the country for some 30 years. And eventually he went back to his room in the high rise where he was staying and he entered the room, but he didn't turn on the light. He walked across the room and just opened the curtains because he knew there would be light coming in from that strip. And in the quietness of the room, he got down on his knees in front of the window and he looked down at that magnificent Las Vegas strip into all that was being offered there. And he prayed this prayer. He said this, God, I thank you that tonight I haven't seen anything I want more than I want you. See, he had the right perspective, didn't he? He understood. And so I think about this old hymn that some of you may know as as I read the words to it. In this old hymn, it says this, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. I'd rather have Jesus than anything the world affords today. And let me tell you, and y'all know this is true. As we look around our world today, there are so much of those things that people want. They want this acclaim. They want popularity because they think somehow that popularity and that fame is going to make them happy and make them whole. But it's an illusion, isn't it? Because a lot of the people that end up getting fame and fortune are more miserable than they ever were. And so this guy had figured it out. This missionary understood. Even though those things are great, he really understood what it was to have a relationship with Jesus. So today, we want to ask you, What are you and I abandoning Jesus for in this world? What are we deserting Jesus for? Something we think will bring us some kind of happiness or fulfillment that ultimately is only temporary. So this morning we're going to offer an invitation as we always do. Maybe you're here today and and, you you don't want to let fatigue, you don't want to let fear, you don't want to let pride, you don't want to let money or riches Or disillusionment keep you from knowing Jesus. So we're going to offer an invitation for you to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Understanding that your life is not going to be perfect. It will be whole, but it won't be perfect. And so we're going to offer that invitation. Or maybe you're looking for a church home. And you know what, y'all? We are not perfect. And we have people that get uh, prideful in the church. Me being one of them. We can be disillusioned in the church, can't we? Um, We can have fatigue and fear make us act in ways we don't like. But that's the beauty of the church, that you know what? I need some people that can hold me accountable. I recognize I need the Holy Spirit to hold me in check on those things. I need other people. Here's another beauty of the church, y'all. When we go through a season of our life where we're disillusioned with God because of the tragedy that's hit us, I can promise you there's somebody else in your church family that has already gone through that. And they can walk you through that and go... Believe me, I know you're mad at God. I know you're disillusioned with God. I lost my a couple of years ago. I had this happen to me. I just want to walk beside you and help you get to a better place. And that's the beauty of the church, isn't it? So we're not perfect, but we're a place of community that comes alongside each other and helps us get through those times. So if you would like to join us today, we offer that invitation as well. So Robbie and our team's going to come up, and uh, we're going to uh, sing a song that's going to prepare our hearts for communion, and as they're coming up, we're going to 
lead into our communion time. And if you're here today for the first time, certainly we welcome you, but also know that we take communion every Sunday. You don't have to be a member of our church to do that, but if you are a believer in Christ, we invite you to be a part of that today. And if you didn't get one of those little packs while they're singing, you can just sneak on out and get you one of those, and we're going to take communion a little bit later after this song together. But I'm going to ask you all to stand right now, and let's try to focus our hearts on Christ and what He did for us, knowing that we deserted Him, and He still died for us and, and allowed His suffering to give us forgiveness and grace and restoration with God the Father. So let's sing together as we prepare our hearts.